The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with me. Father, you spoke to us through your servant Paul and said, anything you can conceive of Absolutely anything you can conceive of will prove unable to separate us from you, from your love, from your care, from your compassion, your concern, your delight for us, your compassion on us, your love. Thank you. Not a thing in our existence can stand between us and separate us from the love that you have for your people in your Son. And for that we say, praise you, God. Because we are well aware that in this life we will encounter many things that will be threats to us and will seem to be separating us from your love. It will rise up and cause us to fear and to hurt and to cry because they are hard. It's a simple word, Lord, but it's true. They are hard. Pain and reality and suffering and confusion are, are everyday occurrences here in this world. Not that every one of us faces that every day, but we face it, Lord, and it's true and it scares us and it hurts and so we say thank you for telling us that none of that separates us from your love you still have profound long wide high deep steadfast love for us your people thank you and today then Lord I ask you that you would open up your scriptures and in light of that help us to deal with some of the affliction of life Speak through your word. Commission your spirit, Father, to come and run through this place in power to open our minds and our hearts to your truth and to shape us. Those of us here who know you, to shape us to be your people, hoping in you, a God of steadfast love. And those who don't know you here, draw them and save them. It's my hope and my prayer this morning, Father. In the name of the Son, Amen. There once was a man who was blameless and upright in all his ways. He feared God and he turned away from evil. He regularly rose early in the morning for prayer and for worship. He lived a sincere, consistent devotion to God. 
And then God took away every last thing he had. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 1 of the book of Job. A chapter that creates great disorientation in Job's life. It throws the train off the tracks. And much of the rest of the book is spent with different people trying to figure out what went wrong. Because surely, Job did something wrong, didn't he? I mean, for God to afflict a person like that, to take away all of his wealth, all of his health, all of his servants, all of his children. Surely Job had it coming, didn't he? Let's figure out what it was. That line of thinking runs through much of the book of Job, through much of humanity, and in much of our lives. We might not say it, but in a lot of ways, we in our hearts often think God does good, to good people, and he gets bad people, right? That's how we think a lot of the times. And we struggle trying to figure out, trying to find our footing, and trying to move ahead when the confusing clouds of affliction settle in and we realize that God also, God even afflicts his faithful people. That's the dilemma that we're going to look at today in Psalm 44. song of uncertainty and confusion and of hope. And as such, it fits pretty well within this this theme of the second book of the Psalter. Like we discussed last last week, the, the Psalms are essentially songs or poems given by God to his people to to help us to deal with the the twists and turns of life that come upon us and sometimes cause elation and celebration and sometimes fear and tragedy and sorrow. All of that is common occurrence in life, ups and downs, and to help us to to walk through them, to press through the clouds, to find just enough footing to to stand on, enough of of a rock to anchor a hold of. He's given us the Psalms to orient us. To help us to deal with this. 150 of them, subdivided into five books. And beginning last week with Numbers 42 and 43, we're going to be focusing on the second book of the Psalms, 42 to 72. Not every single one of them, but let's take some selected ones out of there. and We're going to see that often there's a theme, not, not every single time, but often there's a theme, the affliction of the people of God. And today we're going to deal with A difficult aspect of that theme, God's role in the affliction of his people, those who are his own. So we're going to look at today, and my hope is that God would use the scriptures to help you think a little differently about affliction and ultimately to grow in hope in God who says, nothing will separate you from my love. So we're going to look at Psalm 44. I'm going to read the whole passage. And we'll go back through it to make sure that we understand what's there before I make a couple of overarching observations. So let me read Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, But them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. 
You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm 44. Structurally, the psalm consists of four major sections, each with a dramatically different focus. The first section, verses 1 to 8, and keep in mind that he's writing this while he is in the state of the last part of the psalm. 1 to 8 is a recollection of the great deliverance that God has worked for his people in the past. And God is the active party. He's speaking to God and he uses that pronoun you again and again and again and again. And who is the you? The you is the Lord, clearly. God has been at work. You drove out the nations. You planted the people. You afflicted the other nations and you set us free. God did it acting against the enemies on behalf of his people. The psalmist says, it wasn't our strength, we're well aware of that. It wasn't our sword, but you, by your right hand, by your arm, by the light of your face, for you delighted in us. It's all about you. He's the king, the champion. Notice he says, even you are my king, not you were their king. He still owns God as king. You are my king. You're the champion. You fight the battles and you win them for us. That's really clear. 
This is a strong, clear, repetitive statement affirming God's actions on behalf of his people against their enemies to judge them and deliver us because he delights in us. And so we're going to praise him and boast in him and celebrate him, Selah. A musical or a poetic term that essentially says, pause there for a second and let that sit on you. Take that in. In this case, take that in because we're about to change direction. But that's who God is. That's what he's done. And he's my king and we will celebrate him forever. Here's a problem though. Second major section, verses 9 to 16. God is just as active. The same pronoun you. And it's actually even more pronounced in the second section because it leads off several of the verses and it creates a rhythm. You, 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 you. Verses 7 and 8, the foes and those who hate us, God delivered us from them. And now, verse 9, you've rejected us and disgraced us. Verse 10, the foes and those who hate us, you have caused us to run away from them and you've given to them the spoil, the fruit of the victory. By God's doing. You walk through the section, you say, You, Lord, made us like sheep for slaughter. You, Lord, sold us for nothing. You, Lord, caused scorn to fall on us, so it made us a laughing stock. And so verses 15 and 16 gets very personal for the psalmist. Disgrace and shame rests upon me. The enemies say, Hey, we just fought against you and we crushed you at almost no cost to us. And now we're going to take all of this stuff, thank you. And by the way, you might think about getting yourselves a new God because that one doesn't seem to be working out very well for you. Ah, That's the shame here. I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of my fathers who just went on vacation at the moment we needed him most. Actually worse, he didn't go on vacation. He was still here. And he did it. You turned us over to our foes. You delivered us in the past from our enemies, and now you have delivered us to our enemies. Man, that's the problem. There there are a couple layers of problem here. There's a problem that there are enemies, and then there's a problem that God has turned us over to them. It's God's doing, but the real problem actually is in the third section. Verses 17 to 22. The psalmist, like, like us perhaps, Tempted for a minute to think, well, okay, God turned us over to them, but I guess we had it coming to us. And then he thinks, actually, no, we didn't. So there is, there's affliction, and God turned us over to us, but the real problem is that we didn't deserve it. What gives? We have not forgotten, not been false to the covenant, not turned back, not walked away in our behavior. Emphasis on not in those couple of verses there, 17, 18. And yet, you still turned us over. Now, he's not claiming that they're sinless. He's, he's not claiming they're sinless. He's claiming that they're blameless before the covenant, which is really different. In the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, a faithful person can be faithful to God and still be a sinner. Here's the, the law. I attempt to walk in holiness, and when I sin, I humbly come to God and plead in faith based on the sacrifices to cover my sin. The Old Testament, the sacrifices are pointing forward to Christ. Here, we're pointing back to Christ. Same basic thing. Saved by faith. I'm a sinner, of course, but I've been faithful to the covenant. I've walked in your ways. 
We, are, we have. That's what we're like. But, 19, you've still done verses 9 and 10, 11 and 12, etc. You've still broken us and covered us with the shadow of death and you've cast us out to live in the forsaken places where the jackals roam and pounce on their prey and eat them. That's what you've done to us covering us in the shadow of death, turning us over like sheep to be slaughtered. I mean, if we had turned away from you, you would know it because you know our heart. But you know we haven't. And for your sake, we are given over to slaughter. What gives? God. It's the third section. In the fourth section, 23 to 26, he comes to a prayer that is just as full of exasperation. Ask why, three times, why do you not hear and act and change things? Because I'm at the end of my rope, my belly on the ground in the dust, bowed down to the lowest possible point, and I'm crying out to you, and there's nothing there. Please, God, leap to action and redeem your people for the sake of your steadfast love. Last word of the psalm. Which is really important. He's desperate and he ends at saying, I don't get it and I really want things to be other than they are, but this much I know, you are my king. Verse 4. And you are a God of steadfast love. And so based on that, I say, help. I'm talking to you. You're the king. And you love me. Help. That's the song. Affliction, ultimately rooted in God, ultimately rooted in God, and not a result of our sin. That's a difficult thing for us to get our minds around. Affliction, rooted in God, not as a result of my sin. Ever been there? Chances are you have. That's hard for us to to handle. I'm going to make two observations from this psalm in hopes of helping us to kind of get our, our hands around that and come to grips with it a little bit this morning. Here's my main point. The love of God in Christ is what enables hope-filled faithfulness amidst affliction. The love of God in Christ is what enables hope-filled faithfulness amidst affliction. Main point, I'm going to work towards that by making two observations. Here's my first one. Related to the central problem of the psalm. I'm going to say it very plainly in a way that might be a little hard for us to swallow, but I'm going to say it and then we'll talk about it. Here's the first point. God afflicts even his faithful people. God afflicts even his faithful people. And I'm using that word afflict in a, in a very generic way to include things that are hard. All different sorts, things that hurt, things that bring sorrow and pain, affliction. God brings various sorts of trials and hardship and pain and suffering to his faithful people, not just to his enemies, 
those who belong to him, and not just to those who belong to him, but because of their sin need to be disciplined, to his faithful people, even to them, God brings affliction. Which is easy to just say, but really, if you stop for a second and try to, try to get a handle on that, especially if you're in the midst of some of that affliction right now or have experienced it, that is hard to swallow. In some real ways, I'm saying that, and, and you know it, some of you have experienced much more affliction than I have. I know that. It's, it's difficult to swallow it. It's hard for us, all of us as humans, to get accustomed to thinking of God as, as acting like this. And so it's difficult to hear, and we find ourselves shrinking away from it and kind of wanting to modify the language a little bit. We prefer to say, affliction happens. It'd be an awkward sort of bumper sticker, but that's the Christian version. We, we want to just say, affliction happens, okay? Let's not talk about where it comes from, it just does. Or maybe we want to say, if we want to bring God into it, we want to say, God allows affliction to happen to his faithful people. It softens it for us a little bit. And in a real way, those things are true. Stuff does happen, and affliction does happen, and God does allow people to do things. Obviously, God works in his world providentially. He does work through miracle, through direct, miraculous intervention, but the vast majority of the time, as we saw in the book of Acts, he works providentially, which means that he brings about his purposes through the actions of secondary means. People or animals, like snakes biting people, weather, like storms. We see that all through the book, end of the book of Acts. God is taking Paul to Rome. God's doing it. How? By means of a corrupt, plotting Sanhedrin, a Roman government that has certain laws and sometimes obeys them and sometimes doesn't, by random weather, it so seems, by snakes biting people. Those are the means that he providentially is using to accomplish his end. But it is his end. They're responsible for their actions. They're carrying out God's end. The best example in the scripture, though, is clearly the cross. You can read Acts 4. Who killed Jesus? Well, the guy who actually drove the nails, he killed Jesus. Yes, he did. Well, actually, Pilate killed Jesus because Pilate ordered that guy to do it. Yeah, he did. Actually, the Sanhedrin that coerced and manipulated and kind of forced Pilate into it, they killed it. Uh-huh. And Acts 4 says, yes to that, and God did too. Great evil for which they are responsible that God sovereignly purposed and brought about through them. So, absolutely, it's fair to say God allows, as long as we don't lose, God's behind it all. We need to keep that in mind. We need to keep that there. It's important for finding hope in the midst of the affliction. Come back to that in a little bit. And we need to realize that this text is emphasizing God's role in the affliction. You can talk about it on different levels. Is it the guy who drove the nail? Is it Pilate? Is it Sanhedrin? Or is it God? You can talk about it throughout the level, but the psalmist skips right to the top. Verses 9 and following, the same pronoun you that was God before is still God. You have done this. You have done this. You are afflicting us. 
And it is entirely proper and in fact biblical to speak that way. The psalmist does here. So does Job. Do you remember what Job said in chapter 1? Right after he finds out about the loss of his life, basically. Now we know, we've read the first part of the chapter, we know that God has allowed Satan to do it. Clearly, that's the conversation going on between the two of them. He allows Satan, and then Satan uses the Chaldeans and the Sabians in a windstorm. And Job loses everything. In the very end of the chapter 1, Job says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says almost the same thing at the end of chapter 2. And so that we don't misunderstand or think that Job missed it, or think the psalmist is wrong and that Job's speaking in fury and anger and the psalmist in confusion. So we don't miss it. The Bible then clarifies the very next sentence after, Joseph, after Job's statement. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Very next sentence. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job says, God took it away from me, and the Bible says, Yes. That's hard. God afflicts even his faithful people through means, and they're responsible, absolutely. But this is God's world. Nothing happens apart from God. What's going on then when God afflicts his own people who have not departed from him? who are in proven relationship with him and are faithful. That's the case here in Psalm 44. Why would God do this? And as soon as you ask the question and turn to the passage and start looking for the answer, why would God do this? You look all through Psalm 44 and what you find is there isn't an answer. It's not there. You ask that, and you don't find an answer. Which is a whole lot like life. We wish it was otherwise, because it would be helpful, wouldn't it? We human beings, we we tend to endure hardship and affliction much better if we know the purpose behind it, and know that there is a purpose, and that there's a reason. Sometimes we even voluntarily embrace hardship and affliction if we believe strongly enough in the end goal. Think of what athletes put themselves through, or members of the military, people getting educations or work. You sometimes will deliberately embrace a harder life with affliction and pain and hardship so as to get something out there. But if you don't know what's out there, we struggle with enduring the affliction. We do much better if we know the answer to why, but it's not here. Just silence. Now, I do think that if we look at the Bible as a whole, we can find some of the answer to the why. Job shows us that. Some of it. We, we read the beginning of Job 1, and we know that there's a discussion going on between God and Satan. How did this come about for Job? God brought Satan, Satan's attention to Job. God started the whole thing. God brought up Job. You realize that? He says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Take a look at him and and notice something. 
What's God doing? We can read that and we realize what God is doing is he's creating an environment in which he can shine forth his glory to display to all of the heavenly powers, this is what I'm like. I so thoroughly grab and change a person and I'm so beautiful and attractive that when I grab and change a person so that he sees me, he will hold on to me and never, ever let go of me. Take away whatever else you want. Watch this. God's about shining his own glory in the spiritual realm. Tough draw for Job, I guess. Not really. Because we also know, we also know, we, we read the end of the book, and we know that at the end of the book, Job never gets the answer to the why question, but he experiences some of the answer. He says at the end of the book, oh my God. I had heard some things about you, God, and now I have seen them. Wow. He's changed. He himself comes to experience God in a totally new way, which is surely a blessing to him. We see that in Job. So there's some, there's some answer to the why. But the point is, from our passage today, what we need to emphasize is that neither Job nor the psalmist nor often us in our circumstances, in the midst of the affliction, we don't see any of that. We ask why, and the crickets chirp, and the tumbleweed blows across the stage, and the answer is... We don't know. God often does not answer the why question. Hallelujah, though, he answers the who question. This is why we can't send God out of the equation, because when we do that, we unwittingly send out the hope. If we turn it into just stuff happens, then stuff just happens, and we're at the whim of stuff, and stuff doesn't love me, Stuff doesn't care a bit about me. But if God's in it, and I can know something about who he is, I can find hope and help there, even if I don't know the why he's doing this. He answers the who question. And that turns us to our second observation. Here's the second observation. Hope-filled faithfulness amidst affliction comes by leaning into the God of love. Hope-filled faithfulness amidst affliction comes by leaning into the God of love. Like when a storm blows outside and you lean against something for support because you find I can't stand up by myself. I need to lean against someone. There's a, a massive tree. Lean into him. The psalmist remains hope-filled and faithful throughout this whole thing even with the heavy load of angst. 
he at the he's sitting in the seat that's going to write verses 9 to following but he also writes verses 1 to 8 to start he knows who God is and he declares you are my king you the, the God who is like this you are my king end of verse 3 you are the one who delights in your people and that's where he rests his case at the very end you are the God of steadfast love that's what I know I don't know why you're doing this. It makes no sense to me. But I know that you are a God of steadfast love. And you are my king. And you have power to deliver your people. And so I'm going to talk to the one I'm supposed to talk to and the only one who cares. You, God. And I'm going to stand here and hope in you until you come. We often are tempted to run off to some other source. But like the persistent widow, the point is we're supposed to stay and talk to him. Jesus polishes off that parable by saying, and will not God help you? Yeah, of course he will. He's for you. Talk to him. That's where the psalmist stays. He knows that much about God, even though he doesn't know why or doesn't understand what's going on. He knows who he is. That is where we must send our hearts to rest, where the writer of the psalm does. He rests on a hope in God to redeem him because of God's love for him. We must say to ourselves, preach to ourselves, I'm going to bring in a little bit from last week, we must preach to ourselves the nature of God and command ourselves to stand on him, to lean into him, to pitch our tent in his shadow. We have to. It's the only hope we have. So the psalmist encourages us to do, and it is explicitly what Paul encourages us to do in Romans 8, where he quotes this psalm. Paul in Romans 8 is dealing with the fact that because of Christ and his cross, all of God's people, middle of 8, he's talking about those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those just, justified, he glorified. And therefore, all of us have one gigantic truth that we must keep in mind. God is for us, doing this chain of work in our lives. God is for us. He has moved by sending his afflicted, righteous, faithful son to redeem us. And so, then he begins to talk about affliction. This is Romans 8, 35 and following, where Paul brings out all kinds of different types of afflictions. And he says, what can separate you from the love of Christ? He starts naming stuff. Such shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. All this stuff, all the afflictions of life, as it is written, and he quotes verse 22 from our psalm, for your sake, all the day long, we are being given over to death, surrendered like sheep to be slaughtered, saying, this is always the way it is. We face all of this stuff in life, but can any of it separate you from the love of God? Verse 37, no. No, it cannot. 
In all that stuff, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us because nothing whatsoever in all of the creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul takes Psalm 44, holds up against it about 15 types of affliction, and says this is what the psalm's talking about, all this type of stuff. And the reality is, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So continue to hope in him. That's, that's how Paul uses this psalm in Romans 8. To call us to lean into the God who has loved us in Christ. That's where hope amidst affliction lies. Lean into him. The love of God is available in Christ only in Christ. Only one place. That's the only way that he can look upon people and delight in them, as the psalm says. It's the only way that he has steadfast love for people that never fades in Christ. If he looks through the lens of Christ at you, he says, I delight in you and I love you. Other than that, what he sees is sinful rebellion. And what he has for you is wrath. In Christ, God has steadfast love for you. Christ is the only one that provides any hope for Psalm 44. Interestingly, look at it like this. Psalm 44 is describing our life, but the only reason that it can describe our life and give us hope amidst affliction is because actually it's describing Christ's life. Who is the beloved one in whom God delights? The one who perfectly kept the covenant and never, not once, never turned away from him, never worshipped another god, never bowed down to any other thing calling itself an idol. And yet was broken, rejected, disgraced, surrendered as a sheep to be slaughtered who cries out, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm at the end of my rope. I'm done here. God, come and deliver for the sake of your steadfast love for me. And God says, I will, because I have steadfast love for you, my son. And he delivers him and raises him up. And because of that, he can have steadfast love for you and deliver you. And only because of that. If you take Jesus out of that, There's no way he can delight in you. There is no way he can have steadfast love for you. And there is no hope. Put Jesus back in though. Because he's there. God has sent his son. Sent him through Psalm 44. Walking in righteousness, loved by the Father, and afflicted unto death. Delivered because of his love, so that he can pour out love on you and deliver you. It's the only hope that there is amidst affliction. God is for you if you are in Christ. 
He has a steadfast, abiding love for you. And nothing, no affliction whatsoever can separate you from that. Now, he may never answer the why question. Why has he done this? Why has he allowed this to be done? Either way, why has this come? I have no idea. Who is in it? That I do know. That one I can go to, my king, who will one day deliver me because he has steadfast love for me and delights in me. And the same is true for you. The love of God in Christ is what enables hope-filled faithfulness amidst affliction. Let me pray. Father, in many ways, looking at you and considering your role in affliction raises a lot of questions for us, many of which don't have an answer. And I pray, Lord, now that you would sit on the minds of your people here and you would give us rest. You would point us to the place of rest and you would show us your love. You mean, Lord, for the cross to be the place where your love is proven, poured out for us in a cleansing flow of blood. Draw our minds to it, cause us to see Christ there, afflicted and redeemed, that we might be redeemed in our affliction. Give us eyes to see that, Father, I pray. Call us to you and give us rest. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.